Welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner, Walid Amar, and Pradeep Tasigi. So today our guest is Dina Dendler-Fushman, who is investigator leading the IR and NLP research groups in the Lister Hill National Center of Biomedical Communications at National Library of Medicine at National Institute of Health. Welcome to the program, Dina. Thank you. When we met a few months ago, I realized there's a lot of NLP work happening in NLM, and I wanted you to give us an overview of this work. So maybe could you start with just an overview of NLM and the NLP-related tools that your groups are working on? Yes, thank you. So NLM has an intramural research program, as do the other NIH institutes. The goals of these intramural research programs usually are to work on something that a university or a private company will not be working on, something that is either requiring a longer time than, say, a grant cycle or something that is too daring to be funded, too exploratory, but is still needed. And this is sort of our goal is to work in these areas. For the natural language processing, one of these projects, for example, is our OpenEye project, which is now a service provided by the Lister Hill Center. But it all started about 10, 15 years ago when we started thinking about searching images by both image features and text queries. And how do we do that? So my very first experience was, because I didn't know any better, is concatenate the image and text vectors and search over these. And then we took it from there, and now it's a service, and we continue exploring. So that's an example of that something that the industry will not do and that the university might not consider because you need a multidisciplinary group. And back then, that was not that common. Another aspect of the natural language processing research at NLM is in support of the services. And of course, the mission of the library is to deliver information about biomedical issues that are needed by clinicians at the point of service, by people who are looking for their health conditions, by researchers at the bench side that are looking, say, for new drugs or new cancer pathways and how to block them. So to better deliver these services, we are also looking into tasks that are research, but will have some implications for the NLM services. An example of that is our medical text indexer. So to search uh, biomedical literature in the past, you really needed an experienced human indexer to go into the article and find out the key terms and Back then, the literature was searchable only by these key terms. Now, of course, we can index full text. We can index, of course, all the abstract, but also the full text of the whole paper. So we asked the question, are these index terms still relevant? And should we continue the practice of assigning these key terms? And the answer was that it is still very important. We have improved search results. We also have different aspects of these terms used outside of retrieval purposes. For example, to describe the landscape of the literature or profile of the researcher or see how different biomedical areas interact 
and uh, for literature-based discovery. So then the question is how the literature is growing very fast. And we have a very limited amount of indexers. And how can the index more efficiently being assisted by our approaches? So we have a medical text indexer set of algorithms that extracts the most relevant terms, maps them to the controlled vocabulary, and then presents to the indexers for their approval. So that's a sort of practice-driven, very interesting, abstractive summarization research. Absolutely. And one of the things I think is most unique in this work is that unlike a lot of the work that happens in academia, PubMed, the tool of choice for uh, most of the biomedical researchers and clinicians when they're looking in the in the biomedical research, which brings a lot of practical considerations, right? So you have to keep the vocabulary up to date because there are a lot of terms that come up every year and you have to make sure that documents are indexed relatively soon because you don't want to wait for too long. You won't be able to be able to find papers that were published recently. So how can you address these aspects and to what extent these are isolated from research? I imagine there's a lot of practical considerations that are not necessarily research-focused. I'm curious to know how much effort do you put on how do you do these activities? Right. So it's really a collaboration between the index section, the other research arm of the National Library of Medicine, and um, part of our one NLM intramural research program is the NCBI that supports PubMed. And there is a lot of engineering research recently in moving PubMed to the cloud. It was very successful. And you're right, we want to have the articles indexed on time. As our director said, if indexing is so important, we should not have a backlog. And we did have a backlog. So what happened this year, we looked into selectively indexed journals. So some journals are very broad. Um, an example would be Science and Nature. They publish articles on everything that also includes biomedical articles. We only need to index those biomedical articles, but we don't know upfront, of course, which ones are going to be of interest to PubMed. And our indexers had to first look at these articles and decide whether they should be indexed or not, then put them into a different queue for indexing and whatnot. So we looked into it from the perspective of learning, and we applied several different algorithms, and we found that we can very reliably say which 30% of the articles will be definitely out of scope for PubMed, and which 30% will be definitely in scope and should be indexed. And then, of course, there is the middle where the algorithm is not sure whether it should or should not be indexed. So that will continue going for that decision, which pile does it go to. But what happened, we reduced the backlog by 30,000 articles. And going forward, we basically are reducing the workload for that decision by 60-some percent. Another example of how that all works together is, so we are a research arm. We are not supporting the day-to-day -day services. We gave the models and the algorithms to the NCBI group that supports PubMed and that supports the tool that ingests information from the publishers. And they actually installed it at the point where the publishers are submitting for these selectively indexed journals. And the decision is made right there. Uh, third is automatically indexed as out of scope and never goes to the indexers. Another third just goes straight to the indexer's queue 
and then the uh, remaining third is going to be reviewed by someone to decide where to route it. Thank you for explaining. I didn't realize the separation in the groups, and it's great that you're able to work together because sometimes like, it's not always easy to set a collaboration between research groups and production groups. Exactly. Uh, I think transition of PubMed to the new algorithm was one example of that collaboration and this new selectively indexed journals algorithm is another and I hope we have more down the road because we have the knowledge of what methods could be applied right away and for the production people to take time and and start exploring this area it's not very efficient. Totally. So I imagine there are a lot of problems that you could be working on in this area because it's very understudied, right? I think within the NLP literature, I feel like biomedical applications and literature-based applications are very understudied. So I'm wondering, how do you prioritize and decide which ones to focus on or to prioritize among all the possible things that you could be working on? Right. Officially, we have our board of scientific counselors. So this is an parallel to the peer review committee. So when you are deciding to submit your grant proposal when you are at the university, it goes to, say, NLM or NSF, and then the peer review says, well, the, yes, this is an important problem, and you should be working on it, or no, or, you know, this is what's lacking. So the same role is played by the Board of Scientific Counselors at the NIH Institutes. So um, when we have these sort of bottom-up ideas. For example, the open eye idea was bottom-up. The imaging researcher and I got together and we proposed it. And then our board of scientific counselors said, oh, that's a great idea. Go and explore it. So we did. We also have sometimes the ideas coming top down because it is a priority for the library, for example. Consumer health questions. We all understand that people now completely changed how they interact with their health providers. They first go online. They describe their symptoms. They see what's available, what might they have, what kinds of treatments could they have, and stuff like that. Or even if they're looking for lifestyle changes, they still go online first. And then they go to their provider with that information. And unfortunately, if they use any of the major search engines. Up until very recently, there was no thoughts about the trustworthiness of the resources that are provided back. Actually, I think when they interviewed people about how they evaluate Yahoo answers, people were giving more stars to the longer answers. So it did not matter if the answer was good or correct, but it was long, so therefore it must be good. So very often the the consumers do not have the background to judge if the advice they're getting is sound. That's why we started looking into providing answers just from the reliable sources. So one of the reliable sources that NLM offers to the public is Medline Plus. This is specifically articles written at the, I believe, K-8 level so that people can understand the health problems. And of course, the bulk of the content is coming from the Institute. So if it's an article about diabetes, that will be coming from the Diabetes Institute written by leading scientists in the field. So that was our director's goal was to answer 
the questions that are coming to NLM customer services faster with this reliable information automatically. So that's how our uh, consumer health question answering project started. Wonderful. This is really exciting. I didn't know about this and now I'm eager to go check it out after we finish the recording because oftentimes I go check some uh, websites like for specific symptoms and it's like, uh, very quickly it goes way deeper than I can understand, which is fine. I think it's necessary for different people to consume information at different depths, which this is a very clearly targeted website with high credibility. And we definitely need more of these. So what was very interesting that the text retrieval conference track had a decisions track in 2019. And when they were proposing and discussing this track a year ago, I went to that discussion meeting and I said, it looks like you're talking about consumer health issues and I will be happy to participate. And they said, no, we want to broaden the decisions to any decisions you make online. But then they ended up actually having the consumer health issues as the most burning ones and they will continue next year. And what's really interesting that so we do have our biomedical informatics community and our bio-NLP community, and even, I would say, bio-information retrieval community. But that interest came out of the open domain. So it is really good to see that the interest is growing from the uh, open domain researchers as well. Yeah, it used to be the case that many NLP and IR people would refrain from working in this area because there is not enough data to work with. I think this is changing in part because of the efforts that your group is putting into the problems. So it's still a huge issue for clinical text, right? And you're absolutely right. NIH had a lot to do with the scientific literature becoming open or as open as possible. Everything that is funded by NIH has to be openly provided in PubMed Central. And that's why we saw so many good solutions and decisions coming out of the community because the data are there. But for the clinical text and for clinical data, we only have um, that mimic data set and some other few smaller collections. And I'm trying to work with various organizations to see if they could release their data because I don't believe that, as I put it recently, we have to get computer science students working on the clinical data if we want to see some progress. Uh, can you explain what you mean by clinical data and how that's different from the Medline text that you described earlier? Clinical notes is what you have in your electronic health record. And even when you are visiting with your family doctor, you are an outpatient, but there is still some kind of record. And it, it's a mixture of structured data and notes. And very often we see that structured data does not give you the full picture because the nuances are described in the notes. And very often what's really important to understanding the patient's case is in the notes and only in the notes. In terms of what is developed for the biomedical literature experiences, a huge drop in performance when you move it to clinical text is because the clinical text is so different. When people are writing their scientific publications, they try to explain what's going on, it's structured, it's grammatical, very few typos. When you work with clinical text, it's really the opposite. You have 
lots and lots of abbreviations, lots of typos. Very often, we're looking at something, you know, does that patient have, say, pneumonia or not? And what we found in mimic notes is that sometimes it will just have some term, like pneumonia, and then semicolon. And it means that it was some kind of a header, but we don't know if the patient has it or not. In addition, very often, the words are not enough. You really need to understand the whole phrase or a combination of the words and the numbers. For example, the patient's fever was... And then it turns out, of course, the patient did not have a fever because the numbers are normal. And very often it is a copy-paste issue. Often there are sort of table-like structures that don't look like tables exactly, but they don't look like text either. But at least these are all electronic, right? You don't have to uh, perform OCR on handwritten text. No, you still have to in some cases. Very often, actually, something that is electronic will be printed out and given to the patient and then at the next location, scanned in. Okay. Right. So, stepping back a little bit, when we think about bio-NLP, I think of three distinct categories. NLP for scientific biomedical documents and then NLP for clinical applications, including clinical applications and decision support systems for clinicians, and then NLP for health consumers. And it seems like you work in all these areas. So you mentioned the main challenge in working on clinical applications has to do with the lack of data. And also my understanding is that also the lack of consistency across the data that's available because different systems collect data in different formats and different granularities. And so it becomes a lot harder to learn from one set of data and then transfer it to use it in a different hospital that uses a different platform. What about the other two categories? What do you see as like the key challenges in the other two areas for health consumers and for understanding the scientific biomedical research? So for understanding research, we need to build a bigger picture. We are relatively decent on understanding a given paper or solving a given task. For example, a couple of years ago, there was this big mechanism where they wanted to read the cancer literature and build a whole understanding of the cancer pathways and where they can be interrupted. And they were attempting to combine it with the models that already exist. So I think the, the challenge for the literature right now is scaling up to including other modalities, not just images, but say genetic data and models, environmental data, and what else we can get, and then building a big picture of health together out of these data points. So I think this is where we should be going with modeling for the literature. For the clinical text, very often it is practical. We need these practical applications here in that hospital. I think the problem there is very often you don't need really new algorithms, sometimes very old ones. Sometimes regular expressions work just fine, and it is practically very useful And I think the VA application has shown that they started detecting cancer one stage earlier when they applied a very simple algorithm. So these things, I think, also should be acknowledged. And these are interesting publications. So it's not necessarily you came up with some brilliant new method of understanding clinical text. But if you have shown that you included it in the workflow and it actually helped the patients 
then I think it's equally interesting. And then for consumers, we have the problems when the questions are very specific. So, you know, any algorithm nowadays hopefully can answer what is diabetes and what types of diabetes are there and what are the most common treatments for diabetes. I do believe that is relatively solved. But if a patient comes in with a very specific question that can only be answered by maybe one paper in PubMed or by some uh, drug insert that speaks in the language that is very hard to understand. So there's a lot of work there, A, understanding these complex needs, and B, finding the answers, and C, translating these answers so that the consumer can understand these. Lots of work in all three areas remaining. Absolutely. I talked recently to Asma bin Abacha and learned about, about the work that you guys are doing to summarize the questions and also to focus on trusted sources when you're delivering the answers. You have a tool that's kind of like in beta mode, I think now it's called Chica. I'd like to give it a shout out. I think it's chica.nlm.nih.gov. Yep. It's really interesting. And all comments are very welcome. So we had a community-wide challenge here, and we hope to have another one next year where get the data to the community and get the community interested in expanding this research area. There is some preliminary work on determining how trustworthy the source is, how current it is. So all of these three, yes, they're sort of separate, but they do come together a lot because clinical decision support is merging the clinical text and the literature. And for consumers, their questions are in lay language, and we need to merge the lay resources and, again, the literature. And, of course, there is another area where Doctors have questions that can be answered only by HR data. So that's another area of research that's very interesting. HR data? What do you mean? So, for example, you can ask, uh, what is the highest blood pressure that patient ever had? And, of course, if you want to figure it out now, you will have to go into the electronic health record and pull all the blood pressure measurements for that patient and then rank them somehow. So the goal is to do it automatically. Got it. To what extent do you think hospitals and medical providers are willing to incorporate these methods? We know that most of our models ever had more than nine, like 98% accuracy. That's very generous, right? I don't know to what extent it's feasible or it uh, makes sense to incorporate any of these methods in a hospital setting or a decision support setting in a medical environment. So our indexers are a lot like the doctors. They will want to be absolutely sure that these 30% are out of scope and these 30% have to go to the indexers. So I think if we develop the models where we say, I'm dead sure this is this, I'm dead sure this is that, and here you really have to look because my model is really unsure about that. And very often when we look at these cases, well, people are also unsure, but we kind of have to make a decision in this case. So uh, I think if we follow these models, and of course, it all depends on what you're trying to achieve, right? So if you're uh, looking for to form a cohort for a retrospective study, then 99% is fine. It's a secondary use of the data. So if you know, if you did not include 
somehow that some of the patients into your cohort, your conclusions will probably still be statistically significant. But if you are trying to detect cancer earlier in the life system in these patients, then probably flagging everyone who you're not very sure about is a better. So it really all depends on what you're trying to achieve. When you say the performance of a model is 99%, what kinds of test sets are you talking about? Surely the applications you are looking at are more critical than many of the other NLP applications that most uh, researchers look at, right? So do you do anything special with how you make these test sets? Have you split your trained test sets or something? So I think what we do even again for the indexers, after we are done with the models using the regular data sets, we take the data that is incoming that they would have had to evaluate anyway, and then we ask them to evaluate the results specifically for that real-life data. And they are usually good about it. They're usually doing it. And then they are more confident again. And then they will go and say, okay, go ahead and implement the system because I'm satisfied. Yeah, and I imagine some applications are still far from this 99 or 98%. So I imagine things like question answering for health consumer questions which are very long and very complicated questions. I imagine this will be a lot lower. Absolutely. I think the best we have seen in question entailment, recognition in that challenge. So the idea of question entailment is we have these frequently asked questions at NIH where the specialists created ideal answers for these frequently asked questions. And very often, the questions that are sent to our customer services are entailed. And then, of course, if we recognize that, we can just grab the perfect answer. So that was the idea. And the best results we've seen there were in the 80s, I believe. So, yeah, ways to go. I have to say, for medical text indexer, when you describe the paper, you have the heading which gives you the main point. For example, it would be blood thinners. And then there is a subheading that talks about the aspects of these blood thinners in the paper. So, for example, it will be, I don't know, complications. It's probably not the right terms, but it's the idea that this is this paper is about these complications. The human agreement on those is in the 60s. And we developed an algorithm that is at human performance right now. But what we are trying to do going forward is work again with the indexers to evaluate only the false positives. Because if we automatically assign something that is totally off, that's not good. If we miss something, they can add it. But if we assign something that is totally off and they miss the point or it's a lot more work to remove these assigned terms, they agreed that they will go ahead and see how many of the things that we assign are really bad. Yeah. And how many are, well, okay, the indexer would not assign it, but it's okay to keep it. So that's sort of going forward. So currently the workflow is for any new document that is to be indexed. The algorithm makes some predictions for the primary and secondary or and the subheadings, and they are edited either by adding new headings or by removing the incorrect ones. And that happens for each document that goes through. Each article that should be indexed from headline, yes. So our index section has indexed million papers this year. Wow. How many indexers are there? 
I believe 120. That's not a lot. I mean, for, for this magnitude of data. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for doing this service. This is amazing. So you mentioned the shared task for question entailment, and I know that you're involved in many other workshops and shared tasks. Would you like to tell us some of the other ones that you're involved in targeting NLP researchers who are interested in working more in this domain, suggesting areas where they can focus on if this is what they want to work on. So the ongoing track is precision medicine. Some kind of a clinical decision support track was running for a very long time. I think we started about 2012 and it's been ongoing and we've seen really good participation over the years. But I think this year we have seen that the interest is kind of going down. So we will see if we can come up with really interesting new ideas. So the idea is to find really precise treatments for cancers. The researchers are given a description of the patient and the cancer and the specific mutation, and they have to find treatments that might work on that patient. So that's the ongoing task for 2020. And how is the task set up? What does the output look like for a system like this? So it's standard track, find relevant documents. And this year we also had the subtask of extracting treatments from these relevant documents. And only two teams actually attempted extracting treatments from the documents. So I'm not sure if we will go ahead with that. The other tasks that uh, we had, and we're still we're not sure that we will have it next year, is the drug-drug interaction extraction. So I did not talk about our collaborations with FDA. FDA have these uh, package inserts that are very relevant to patients also, because this is everything you should know about the drug that uh, you're taking. And it is not machine understandable. So it is in a um, sort of XML-like format. And the sections are clear, but within the sections, it is all free text. And very often, it is not quite clear if the adverse reaction was observed or uh, if there was a, an interaction between these, the label drug and some other drug. So we've annotated several hundreds of these drug labels for adverse drug reactions and for drug-drug interactions. And we've had several tech challenges on that topic. The collections are, of course, all available. And what's really nice, I'm always getting these emails about how, you know, can I use that collection? Yes, of course, please do. So, um, so, so the collections leave on after the challenge, so anyone can use all of these. The same goes for consumer health question answering. We released a lot of annotated questions. We released uh, question answer pairs, uh, summaries of the questions. So all of these are available. Uh, so that's very relevant to a project I've been working on recently with Lucy Wang and others at AI2, where we were extracting uh, drug supplement interactions from scientific documents. And I'm wondering, in your perspective, to what extent we want to extract these interactions, whether it's drug-drug or supplement-drug interactions, from um, the scientific literature as opposed to the labels that are provided by FDA. I guess the supplements don't have FDA labels necessarily, right? So the supplement will be there only if it is mentioned in some drug labels. And there are very few. And of course, the supplements are not regulated by FDA, right? So you will find that in the literature, although we did not find all that many, 
And I think the social media will be another really good source. It is not very clear usually, right, that, oh, I'm taking this drug and I took that supplement and this is why I experienced it. So you'll have to do a lot of inference, I think, to see, you know, someone is complaining, I don't know, about uh, nausea what else <laughs> and, and then they say well i've been always taking that vitamin and i recently started taking that drug or maybe it could be a series of communications that will give you the whole picture of what is that you know very often we had a very interesting study several years ago people coming into the hospital and the first thing the nurses ask them what drugs are you taking of course they say something of course no one ever mentions the supplements they're taking so unless the nurse specifically asks are you taking any supplements then people would probably go like oh yeah maybe i'll and then we also have the um, database from the vendors where they actually record what's been given to the patients, what the patients bought from the pharmacy. And when our researchers put these two lists together, it turned out that there's only a one-third intersection between the two. So a lot of these prescribers' information was incomplete because the patients were getting stuff from elsewhere and taking these other things. And a lot of what they told they were taking, they forgot about the other stuff that they did. When I think about incorporating a model like this, right, so let's say we want to help um, the medical providers identify basically potential interactions when a patient mentions the drugs they, they're currently taking or maybe taking. I imagine the hardest thing about, harder than developing the model that makes the predictions or uh, like tries to find all candidates is actually convincing the medical providers to use it. And I wonder to what extent medical professionals are involved in designing the tasks and to what extent the results of a model that performs well on these tasks would be trustworthy. That's a really good question. They, uh, there are several organizations where the informatics professionals, the computer scientists, and, and the practitioners come together. There is AMIA. So definitely there are clinicians that are very involved and actively seeking what percentage are they out of um, people who are actually practice day to day. I would think it's a smallish percentage, but they, they do exist. And I think like, you know, teaching hospitals will have probably a higher percentage of people that are involved with research. The other thing that you mentioned and that would be very interesting for NLP research, the, the big picture is these noise resistant models and the models that can explain why they're recommending it. And also I recommend with very high confidence because I'm sure you've heard about the alert fatigue among clinicians that, you know, we always hear some horror stories where there were so many alerts, they turned them off, and then there was this fatal alert that they did not see because they turned off the alerts. So we have to be very judicious in when to actually send an alert. Yeah, I do remember in, in various like hospital visits hearing continuous alert systems like sounding and it seems like nobody's paying attention because just like it's, it's just too many of them. It's as with any signal, if it's constant, I think 
our brain just tunes it out. Yeah, I really appreciate your perspective on this. I know you've been trained both as a medical, uh, as an MD and as a computer scientist. So you have PhD in both areas. It's uh, pretty impressive that you did that. Congrats and uh, and thank you for uh, trying to bring the two fields together. That's really a valuable service. I'm not alone. Uh, there are many people that are trained in both. And of course, there's this area of medical informatics that tries to cover both and actually give formal education in both. If someone wants to do a program like this, what, what they should be looking for? So if someone wants just an introductory level of what is it all about, there is the AMIA, American Medical Informatics Association, 10 by 10. And there are courses offered by different universities. There is OHSU, there is Stanford. They all have slightly different flavors, and people can look into which flavors are most interesting for them. So I had one of my postdocs, actually, his background is in computer science, and he took that Amy 10 by 10, and he was very happy because it opens that perspectives of what are the clinicians thinking about, what are their needs. And then it's mostly online, but I think they have a final meeting at the Medical Informatics Association Conference. Wonderful. All right. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up in this episode before we close? I think I'm fine. Thank you again for uh, asking all these wonderful questions. Thank you so much for joining us, Tina. Thanks a lot. It was nice talking to you.